At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. I want to welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast when we're, where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA, and where we're seeking to glean wisdom uh, from men with ministry experience and service to those of us who are recently entered into the ministry in this denomination we so love. It is my privilege today to actually be interviewing my co-hosts, Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion RP Church in wonderful Marion, Indiana. Aaron, do you have any trivia or selling points for Marion, Indiana for us today? You've gotten out of that swing for a while. I have, yeah. My wife was making fun of me for it the other day. And I was like, I don't know if I should keep doing this, but I actually, I have I have a, a factoid for you about Marion, um, but it's super depressing. It's actually really, uh, really sad. So um, Marion, Indiana is the last known location that a lynching took place here in our state. So we have, we have that uh, that claim to fame, I suppose. So it's it's not as exciting as Garfield statues or, you know, green carpet, <laughs> but it's a factoid. So there you go. Knowing a little bit about Marion myself, I was impressed at how far you were able to go with selling points on Marion. As far well, as you did. I'm, I'm going to come up with more. Don't get me wrong. Like I, okay. I will. And so when I, when I said that I, I think we have uh, one Airbnb, I was kind of shooting from the hip, but I looked it up the other day and we actually literally only have one Airbnb. <laughs> in fact, it's the only Airbnb here in, in uh, Grant County. So there you go. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, we're here today to interview you. Got a few questions for you. One of them is, I think you may be somewhat unique. Um, I'm sure there are others, but being a pastor now, you're a man who actually started out not as just nothing or not as a ruling elder, but actually uh, you were a deacon. Remind me again how when you became a deacon at Second RP Church and for how many years you served in that office? Yeah, that's a good question. I was trying to think what year I was ordained as a deacon. Um, I think it was... It was either the end of 2018 or the very beginning of 2019, because um, I was only a deacon for about a year, year and a half before I moved to seminary. Okay, that's 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 about what I was thinking. So since since at least at this point, um, we're not only is it unlikely that we'll have a bunch of ruling elders on in the near future, uh, though that's something we've we've thought about in the more distant future, but with the lack of deacons being on the show and that's maybe something again, we could, we could think about in the future, but you are our, our man with diaconal knowledge from, from experience of your own. So just if you could briefly give our listeners just for some clarity, I think often times um, in the modern church, the deacon, well, there's all sorts of confusions on what deacons are, but Usually, at minimum, they're thought of as just being glorified groundskeepers and people that we we ordain to make sure the church church property looks spick and span. But what is just the basic, general, biblical role and duty of deacons? I'll answer that in uh, just a second. I was just thinking about what you'd said. You know, not many go from deacon, I guess, to um, teaching elder, but Rich Johnston, who's the retired pastor from second RP, he was actually a deacon and then a ruling elder and then a teaching elder. Nice. So I think he's, he's the only one who's, um, I hesitate to say all three because we're a two office, uh, uh, denomination, but at least he, he held both, 
um, roles in the office of elder. Mm, uh, so cool. he, he might have some interesting perspective at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we think about the, the diaconate, um, particularly with the introduction of deacons in the new Testament church in Acts six, um, we see that their primary responsibility is not simply that of maintaining the grounds, but of uh, maintaining and distributing uh, finances under the oversight in Acts 6 of the apostles, and then now under the oversight of uh, the elders. But you remember from Acts 6, this is really, um, it's actually kind of interesting um, because it follows, you know, duh, Acts 5 and Acts 4, but in Acts 4 towards the end of, (laughs) I know, brilliant, um, in Acts 4, the end of that chapter, you have all of the church kind of sharing everything uh, in common. They're selling their land. They're selling their homes. They're bringing the proceeds then to the feet of the apostles. And we see that continue. Um, but by the time we get to Acts 6, a lot of the widows are being neglected, particularly the Hellenistic widows. Um, so the, the Jewish widows, they're being taken care of. But the Hellenistic widows, for one reason or another, we can speculate on why, uh, they're being neglected. And so they come to the apostles and they're like, listen, so- something's got to give. And so the apostles basically say, well, why don't you pick um, seven godly men from among you and we'll ordain them and they'll uh, take care of this because the primary role of the apostles was to teach and to pray. And so they were being distracted by all of these administrative things. And so we see the Lord raise up uh, these seven men, particularly um, to function not just as groundskeepers, but as those who handle the mercy ministry, those who handle um, taking care of the poor and the neglected. Um, And, you know, we see in um, in Titus and Timothy that the qualifications of a deacon are are very similar to that of uh, the qualifications of an elder with uh, the exception of of teaching. Um, But character does matter uh, when it comes to distributing the funds. And one of those reasons is like you're dealing with people, you're dealing with finances. Um, so we ought to be those who are not given uh, to greed or, or to other such things. And I mean, we see what happens when people are given degree with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but in any case, the, the role of a deacon is um, really twofold and it's that of ministry of mercy and ministry of stewardship. And so when we think about ministry of mercy, we've talked a little bit about what that means from Acts 6, but um, also as we just think about it in our own day and age, it's, you know, not every church is full of Hellenistic widows, though there are widows and they uh, ought to be cared for by the deacons. Um, but they are to kind of take the the point under the oversight of the session uh, when it comes to meeting the mercy ministries or, or you know, mercy needs of the congregation, uh, the mercy needs of the community, the mercy needs um, of the state, of the nation, um, international needs, and, and denominational needs. Now, it, it's, uh, I forget the guy who wrote the book, uh, When Helping Hurts. Do you remember who wrote that book? No. no. So he he defines poverty not so much as material need, but as relational need. And those two go hand in hand. So one of the things that, you know, deacons can be involved in is just the ministry of visitation. Um, and visiting those who um, are in need, visiting those who are shut-ins, um, and, and providing love and care that way. But but the second um, responsibility of the deacons is the ministry of stewardship, and this gets more to or what, uh, at least in our circles, um, what deacons function as, um, those who kind of uh, oversee the work of the treasurer, oversee the finances, um, oversee the maintenance of the building. Um, our constitution even talks about offering family budgeting counseling uh, to those who need it. So it, you see that the deacons are really um, administrators of um, finances and of uh, material uh, type things. Now, what a deacon is not, and this is not so much uh, a temptation in our circles, though you could argue in some cases it, it could devolve into that. Deacons are not elders. And in the evangelical church, we kind of see pastors um, and then we see deacons functioning essentially as elders um, when that's not really what a deacon is. So perhaps we could quibble on terms or quibble on um, roles, but a deacon is one who is over the mercy ministry of the church and over the stewardship of the church. Thanks. That's helpful. Um, So how should then members uh, relate to their deacons? You kind of just made a point that they're not elders. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how then should members relate to their deacons and how should they approach them with both mercy and stewardship needs. 
Yeah. So in, in my experience as a deacon, um, you know, I was part of a good group of guys, um, good group of, uh, you know, deacon board there. Um, but at the time I was also working at second RP as their facilities manager, which was basically a glorified, you know, maintenance man. Um, so what people came to me mostly was, you know, clogged toilets and, uh, light bulbs that needed to be changed. <laughs> um, but one of the ways that, uh, we kind of divided roles and responsibilities would we, we would have, I mean, we, we all were responsible for these things, but, you know, some deacons just focused on these particular issues. So whether it was issues of hospitality, issues of mercy, issues of finance, issues of building, um, we all had our individual focus. And then we would talk about those at our uh, monthly um, deacon meetings. But the, the way that um, the congregation should relate to the deacons is, I mean, don't, don't be afraid to, one, speak of a need. So whether it's your own need or whether it's somebody else's need, like the deacons are there to support the church. Um, so if there's a, if a financial need arises um, in your own household, you know, the church has a mercy ministry fund or most churches do. Um, and if they don't, then, you know, the deacons are there to set that up. Um, so don't feel any shame about seeking help. Or if you know somebody who does need help, um, and they may not want to bring it to the, the deacons. There, there may be a tactful way to let the deacons know of that need. Um, there was one time where Mary and I needed to buy a new washer and dryer, and we were just financially not in a place to be able to do this. This is before I was a deacon. Um, and somebody found out, and I don't know who, and somebody told the deacons. The next thing I know, I get an email from them saying, hey, um, here is the, the credit card for the church, or basically, no, um, no, they did give me the credit card. Here's the credit card for the church. Go to Lowe's, buy yourself a dryer, have them install it for you. And that was a huge blessing. And I still, to this day, have no idea how they found out about it. So the, the deacons are there to um, love and support. So the congregation ought to feel the freedom to be able to ask for help um, or bring the needs of others to the deacons. That's that's what they're there for. What, at Second RP, did you guys have any kind of protocol for kind of proactive diaconal visitation in the sense of, you know, like here at Westminster, we have our deacons also assigned to, sh to shepherding groups with the elders. And so they mm -hmm. kind of have this lesser group of people that each of them as individuals can focus on and they're to be checking in with them. Uh, what did you guys have at second or just maybe what do you, what do you think would be a good practice for deacons for proactively checking in with mm -hmm. their people and seeking to proactively find out about needs versus being purely reactive? Well, so with the visitation, um, there were times where kind of we wanted that as deacons um, to kind of go along with the elders during visitations. Um, and in theory, that's a really good idea. But there are also times where, you know, you've done visitations before where you're having a visitation and there's actually a really serious issue that comes up. Um, and the person that you're visiting may not feel as comfortable sharing some of the challenges that they're facing individually or as a family, or maybe even challenges that they're experiencing at the church with those who are not elders. So if something like that's set up that you got to bear in mind um, the pros and cons, um, we were pretty, intentional as far as dividing it, not into shepherding groups, because, you know, as deacons, we weren't shepherds, at least in the formal sense. Um, but we did try and divide the, the congregation up to be like, okay, we need to be uh, talking to them and kind of fishing for any, any needs that they might have, or maybe even ways that, uh, that we can look at their gifts and see, okay, this person actually is really, really good at, um, I don't know, visiting the homeless. And so maybe we can um, hold their arms up in ministry, uh, that that kind of thing. The only time that we did kind of individual visitations was right after COVID, um, when the church shut down and people weren't, you know, we weren't able to gather. You know, legally the state said if you have more than six people together, you're you shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, however you feel about that, that's kind of in the back burner now, and people can argue about it. Um, but the the session decided that, that that's what we were going to follow. So what uh, we did as deacons is we we got the hospitality committee together and we said, okay, we want to come up with like care packages for each individual household. 
And so um, a care package was put together, kind of tailored to the individual family. So if there were kids, there was like kid activities and candies. And if there were singles or, you know, it, it was basically just junk food and coffee and maybe a candle. <laughs> Um, but all those were put together and then all of us kind of figured out who, you know, who was in our, um, group and we would drive and we'd hand deliver these things and, you know, express our love and say that we missed them. Um, so that was really the only thing that we did while I was there. But again, I was only a deacon for a very short period of time. I guess maybe I should have clarified for, for, for one, I agree with you. Um, our deacons, though they're assigned to shepherding groups, they, they don't go on like the mm-hmm. elders visits. I, I should have clarified. I was using visits in the more broad sense of, of showing care and concern for and checking in with whatever form that may take. So I think often um, we associate the word visit with like the in-home mm-hmm. visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I should have clarified that I was speaking more broadly. So, I mean, did you guys have anything, else like in general like on the lord's days would you ever kind of go try to proactively approach someone with like specific diaconal questions like you know or or, or any other broad check-in type proactive Mm -hmm. principles that you guys may have used or that you've thought on in reflection yeah i mean it's it's been a number of years but i do remember us basically saying okay here here's three or four people that we all want to be making contact with in our group um, that we assigned ourselves um, to talk to. Now there, there are people at least at, at second, and I'm sure this is true of most congregations. Um, <clears throat> there are people who generally have more needs than others. Um, so there was particular attention paid to those kinds of people. Um, I don't want to necessarily get into the details about what those needs were. I don't know if that would be overly helpful for us, but yeah, there, there certainly was an intentionality in talking to people and talking to people we know had needs and had ongoing needs. Cool. Yeah, no, that's helpful. All right. So you are a man. Let me, let me, let me stop you here real quick. Sorry. Um, I just want to give all a right. plug. <clears throat> Sorry. I know you were, you were on a roll. You were acting all. I was know, on a roll. Office. It was you, good. It was fine. You just killed it. You killed it. Okay. Well, that's that's okay. That's okay. You'll get over it. Um. Barry York has a uh, mercy ministry class that you can actually get online. Um, I forget the actual website. If, you might even be able to go to like rpts.com or .org um, or .edu. I don't know what it is. At Blackwood would be so upset with me right now. Um, but he has a uh, class that's dedicated um, to training deacons in mercy ministry. Um, and that's something that, that we did uh, as a deacon board. It was very helpful to us. So um, you don't have to be a deacon to take it. You can talk yourself, but uh, I mean, it's, I think it's like a hundred bucks and, and you get it and you just share the link with people and you can watch it, um, share it with your deacons. Don't just broadcast it to everybody. Um, but that, that's something that, that we found really helpful. Um, was that mercy ministry training? Were there any, any other books that you guys found helpful or that you may have read as an individual deacon or as a deacon board together? Yeah. I mean, uh, when helping hurts was a, it was a really good one. Um, not just a soup kitchen, um, was also helpful. I mean, they're very similar. Um, there's a book leaning over, it's on my shelf in a second, title super complicated. Um, so you'll forgive me for forgetting it, but it's just called the Deacon. I can't remember who it's by. I'd get up and go get it, but that that's another good book. I don't agree with everything in that book. Like he takes a different position, um, regarding women and uh, the diaconate, uh, which I disagree with, but other than that, it's a really helpful book. So those those three things, a deacon, um, not just a soup kitchen, and when helping hurts. Cool. Is is the deacon, is that that kind of um, companion volume to that book on uh, the ruling elder by the Dutch guys? Um, so there's one. that The that, elder's handbook or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it's the deacon's handbook. Um, <clears throat> that one's fine. I actually didn't really find that one helpful. Okay. Um, th- th- so this is not that. Okay. Okay. All right. Now back, I'm going to try right. and get this snowball right. rolling again yep. here. Go ahead. Get your pompous attitude right, up. We You're leaning right. back in your you chair as you were talking. a man of vivid imagination. So vivid. So vivid. And, and recently, though, we did have a brother reach out to us asking about some helps or resources or tips when it comes to illustrations in sermons. And I think, you know, as I've reflected on 
our time at seminary and having opportunities to listen to the men in our class preach numerous times, I do think it is pretty obvious and clear that you are the best illustrator of the bunch of all of us. And Josh Smith and myself didn't have much other than like a resource perhaps to, to offer to this other brother because he and I are self-admittedly not the greatest illustrators, though I'm pro-illustration. Um, but I was just curious if you could, you know, this is this kind of ties into our want to bring a preaching question of some kind into these episodes. What were some of the tips that, that you gave to this brother that you find for yourself when it comes to kind of getting the wheels turning for developing illustrations which which don't overshadow the explanation but but serve to enhance and shed light on the meaning of the passage yeah well i think to tee up the thank you for saying that i can't help but notice that uh, you said i'm the best illustrator but you had you know nothing to say about any of the theological content of the sermon i won't take that personally but that's uh i just it's interesting that you pointed that out in any my case, words were intentional <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'll give you a little bit of theology of illustrations first then. Um, you know, we could talk about why illustrations are important. We could talk about the attention span that people have. We could talk about how much easier it is to, you know, make eye contact when you're telling stories versus when you're trying to um, just make your preaching points, that kind of thing. And those are valid. Um, but Jesus was an illustrator. You, you can't read the gospels and you can't, um, read the teachings of Jesus without seeing that he was constantly illustrating his point through parables or through um, things that were taking place during the day. You can think of, um, you know, sowing the seed in the soil from Mark four. You can think of Jesus using the tower of um, Salome and, and Luke 13, but Jesus is constantly using his surroundings. He's constantly using stories um, to illustrate and to emphasize his point. Um, so using illustrations is good because Jesus did. Uh, we want to, we want to teach like Jesus. So when it comes to um, how I think about illustrations or how I come up with illustrations, I, I, let me throw the question back to you. Um, do you want me to come up with all these? Cause I normally don't respond to these uh, group texts, but I got this one. I was like, oh, I'll just throw a few thoughts in there. And the next thing I know I've got 16. So do you want me to hit all 16? You, you hit whichever ones you want to hit. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to start just working down and then uh, we'll see if I skip any over. Uh, um, over any of them. But when it comes to illustrating um, things in our sermons, the best place um, is to use scripture itself. So again, this is the Psalms often um, harken back to things that have taken place in scripture. Um, the Lord is constantly reminding his people of his covenant faithfulness to them uh, to emphasize and illustrate his ongoing faithfulness. So when it comes to thinking up an illustration, Think to yourself, is there something in scripture um, that there's a parallel to this or um, helps show the point? So as an example, you know, I'm preaching um, in Acts 5, this coming Lord's Day, and this is Ananias and Sapphira. So where would I go in scripture to kind of illustrate this point? Well, I would go to uh, Joshua 7 with Achan stealing uh, the things that were dedicated to the Lord after Jericho was destroyed because this is pretty much what uh, Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They're dedicating something to the Lord and they're holding back some of it, but they're lying about it. And in fact, the uh, Greek word that Luke gives for keeping back, the only other time that's used in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, is describing what Achan did. So when we think about illustrations using scripture to help illustrate uh, scripture, um, this is in no particular order as far as importance, but um, it's okay for us to use pop culture illustrations if we do so cautiously um, and carefully. Uh, sometimes they can be really unhelpful, and honestly, there's a lot in pop culture that's downright sinful and should have no place um, in our sermons. Uh, but there are times where, where we can use them, whether that's uh, movies, books, things that are taking place in the news, um, th those kinds of things. Um, another helpful uh, way to think about illustrations is when you're trying to make a point, uh, think of shared experiences that the congregation uh, may have had together or can relate to. So I'm, I'm going to give another illustration um, in this same sermon. 
And, you know, I'm going to tee it up with, you know, have you ever been caught in a lie like Ananias was and how awkward and um, <laughs> challenging and uncomfortable that that experience is. And so the the way I'm going to illustrate that is I was on a uh, ride along with one of our members who's a police officer. And um, pretty much as soon as the ride along started, he got called in by uh, another fellow officer asking for uh, assistance because someone had uh, stolen a lawn chair off of someone's patio. And so um, this man who I was doing a ride along with, he had access um, to an apartment um, that he also did security at. And so he could look at the security cameras because it looked like, um, at least from the lady whose chair was stolen, that this guy went into this apartment complex. So we go into the apartment complex. We look at the uh, security video and the guy, sure enough, walks in with the chair and he goes into his his room. And so I was like, well, there he is. So knock on the door and they ask him, you know, did you steal this chair? Uh, we've got you on camera from the ring doorbell that you stole the chair. We've got you on camera um, walking into the building. We've got you on camera walking into this particular apartment complex. And the guy says no, all the while sitting in the chair that he stole. <laughs> um, so that that's that's one way to illustrate the, the point. Now, there's a bit of humor in that, and there's no humor in the, the lie of Ananias and Sapphira. It ended up in his death, but that's just one way to illustrate uh, these things. Um, another helpful um, reservoir of illustrative material is thinking through church history, um, thinking about the stories that have taken place, uh, the debates that have taken place, different heresies, um, different theological works, different stories. Um, so last week I used the, the story of the two Margarets um, who were killed during the killing times um, as just an example and illustration of uh, boldness and the gospel and that boldness actually does cost you something. So if you want to hear that illustration, you can look it up if you want. Um, I'll just skip through through a few things. Um, whenever I'm thinking about how to... Um, illustrate a point or explain some theological concept. I always ask, how would I want it to be explained to me? Because sometimes you hear people explain things and it's it's a really good explanation. But uh, for me, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the, uh, the shed. So sometimes it goes over my head. So once I actually grasp a point, it's like, okay, how can I explain this point to uh, someone who has a similar intellectual ability like me? When it comes to explaining things and illustrating things, I like to um, try and use my kids so I'll workshop ideas with my kids, and if they get it, then, then I think it works. Um, I run my illustrations by my wife, who's very helpful. Um, see if that if it, if it works or if it's too confusing or too distracting, which leads me to another point. Your illustrations ought to highlight your point that you're making from your sermon and not distract from the point. Sometimes we can tell um, such good illustrations that that's all people think about. Uh, one example of that is uh, I was preaching in uh, the book of Judges, and it was on Micah um, and his, you know, own personal Levite. And basically the story is, you know, Micah basically goes off his, on his own and he completely abandons um, the regular principle of scripture. So my illustration was um, a personal anecdote when I was a kid, you know, I was making pancakes and I don't like to follow recipes. I like to cook from the heart. You know, I like to add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that. And I like my pancakes sweet. So I decided to add, you know, three times as much sugar as I normally would. That way you don't have to use syrup. Okay. There's a logic to it. So I made the pancakes. This is the first time I ever made pancakes and I was waiting for my family to eat them. And so they began to take their first bite and then immediately spit out the pancake. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. So then I try a bite and I spit it out. And what I did was I mixed up the sugar and the salt. So I added three times as much salt. Um, and, you know, the illustration is I didn't follow the recipe. I didn't, I didn't follow um, the regulative principle more or less. So how is that distracting? Well, um, we, uh, instead of doing a formal evening service here in Marion, we do prayer and pancakes. So every time I make pancakes, someone reminds me of that, uh, that story and makes fun of me for the salt. So thank you congregation. Yeah. You're laughing at me too. I'm going to make, I'm going to make you pancakes when you stay at my house for synod. They're going to be, they're going to be super tasty. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Um, let's see here. If you ever, I just, I just paid for the breakfast thing. So, Oh, I yeah. better be eating at Synod. Little do you know, I'm the cook for Synod. <laughs> um, let's see here. If you ever use your family um, as an illustration, get their permission first. Um, 
or anybody that's going to be in the congregation or, or anybody period, honestly. So, you know, I just told the um, ride along story and I got permission to use that. Um, so you get, get permission. Oh boy. I'm going to stop it there. And if you have more questions, um, feel free. No, that's good. Do you, so do you think just kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of your natural constitution as an individual that you, you kind of spoke of that makes you, I mean, we all need to be illustrating as you made the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the strongest argument for illustration is the ministry of Christ himself. Um, but, or, or would you say that there's something to your love for uh, fiction material that has aided you in having a more imaginative mind and perhaps going there quicker, more often yeah, I mean, than otherwise? I think, or? I think so. Like the Lord gives us all different gifts um, and talents. And I love stories. I love storytelling. I love people telling, I love telling people stories about life. Um, I love movies. I love TV shows. And I think that that may be one reason why I'm more inclined to be thinking about illustrative material, maybe than you or our buddy Josh Smith, which you're both great preachers, by the way. So even if you don't have illustrations, you can still preach a good sermon. And if you have good illustrations, you can still preach a bad sermon. Sure. Sure. Cool. Yeah. I think that was, um, I think those, I think you hit most of them. I don't remember any that you left off that that stuck out to me, but you know, I thought, I thought that was helpful. I've got that book that I sent to that group. It's, um, I forget exactly where I saw that recommended, but it's 10,000 illustrations from scripture. And that's basically what it is, is it's various topics that, are illustrated by the scriptures themselves. So, you know, you can look up, it's basically like a concordance. You can look up a word or a theme and it's just giving scripture references as to where said topic or theme is illustrated by the scriptures themselves. And I probably don't use that tool enough, but I do use it from time to time. Have you, have you found it helpful? Yeah. The times where I've used it. I mean, cause it's just, it's doing what you said to do. Yeah, in the I've, sense, I've tried to use books like that, but I found like if if I'm basically borrowing someone else's creativity, it just doesn't work well. No, that's not what you're understanding. This is ten thousand illustrations yeah, from I get scripture. It. I get so it's it. It's no one else's creativity. I get it. Um, it's not like those ten thousand um, preacher illustrations. To yeah, where those are those are trash. Well, this if, is, you, if you like them, sorry. Um, I, I don't find them helpful. So the way it's laid out, does it basically have, is it like topical? So how to illustrate, I don't know, gossip. Sure. Like, it could be something like, okay. or no, not how to just where is a scriptural illustration of gossip or a scriptural example, an illustrative example of said topic or theme. Mm-hmm. Who, who's uh who's the author? Uh, uh, I think I may have seen MacArthur recommended Charles Little. I have no idea who he is, but it's it's kind of irrelevant because it's it's in a sense it's almost like just like I said it's like a concordance that you would use. You know where do the scriptures elsewhere use this word, or mm-hmm. you know a cross reference guide. Where do other places in the scriptures speak about this same thing? And so it's of that family of concordance and cross-reference systems. It's just an illustration mm-hmm. cross-reference is basically what it is. Yeah. Well, so a- cool. anyways, I, yes, when I use it, I find it helpful, but I don't always use it because I don't think often enough my mind goes toward how could I illustrate this? Mm-hmm. Though I think, I think it should, it should more so. Um all right. Another thing I've been I've been reading lately, uh, the Heart of Christ. Your uh, mic's rubbing Thomas. against your. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No Are we back now? All yeah, right. Lately, I've been right. reading um, Thomas Goodwin's The Heart of Christ, and in there he has just a wonderful section on John thirteen and speaks um, gloriously, really, about Christ's heart towards sinners on earth while he's in heaven and how he loves his people even when he's in a sense 
physical sense, at least, away from them. And something I've always noticed about you whenever there may have been times where we were at Presbytery or um, I think when we were out taking seminary course or wherever it's been, I think um, you're, you're a model of, at, at least in some ways, of actively loving your wife while you are away from her. And one of those ways that I've always noticed, like I said, I'm not away from my wife very often, but it's made me want to put, implement this when I am away from her and, and I'll have an opportunity when we're at Synod. I thought but you were going to say you all, you wanted, it made you want to be away from your wife. No, not at all. <laughs> I think that's why I'm not away from her very much mm-hmm. is because I never really want to be ever. Um, nice. But you always are praying with your wife at night. So my wife and I, we pray together every night, but that's not something in the past that I had implemented or for whatever reason, call it my, my ignorance and stupidity, uh, even, even thought about doing when I was away from her. But I've always noticed how you always are calling and still praying with your wife over the phone. And so just curious as to where the, where and the why behind Mm -hmm that practice and if there's any other things that you try and do to actively love your wife while you're away from her as Christ loves the church while he's away from her. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a model at this. Like this is something that, that Mary and I have grown into. We certainly have not done this um, for the whole course of our marriage. Um, But it's certainly part of our, you know, family worship structure routine so when we first got married, um, I was abysmal at leading family worship. Like every now and then, maybe we would, you know, read the Bible together. Maybe we would pray, um, but it was not very faithful in that. And then, you know, the Lord blessed us with uh, children. And so we started to kind of amp up, like we made the conscious decision to amp up our uh, family worship and uh, be committed to that. And, you know, there, there are seasons of life where, you know, you, you hit the mark and you're doing family worship every day. And then there's other times where it's like, man, we've only done it once a week, or we didn't even get to it this week. Um, so one of the, one of the ways that, um, I try to love my wife is by letting my wife do what she's supposed to do, which is to, to be my help meet. Um, and so asking her, you know, remind me if I fail to set a time for us to do family worship with the kids. Um, and so she would do that uh, very graciously and very kindly. And so, you know, we would grow in that. But one, one of the things that I still was failing in, even if we were doing family worship consistently, was, you know, it, this was just with the kids. It wasn't something that, you know, Mary and I were doing together a, as a couple. And so as we talked about that, you know, we would try to put structures uh, in place for us to to be able to pray together. And what we found, at least was um, as soon as we put the kids to bed, um, our habit then is to sit down and to pray together. And that was just a habit that we formed. And we were talking about it yesterday, and I can't remember when we started. I I, I think it was before we went to seminary, but it, it may have been while we were in Beaver Falls. I, I can't remember. Um, so it's still a relatively recent uh, practice. Uh, so, you know, if I'm away, Mary would try and she'd text me before she would call to make sure that I was able. Cause sometimes if you're at Presbyterian or Synod, you know, um, sometimes the sessions go late or you're in meetings with other people. Um, so she would text me as soon as the kids go to bed and then we would set a time for me to be able to call her back and for us to pray together. Um, so that, that's how it started as far as other ways, you know, to love your wife while you're away. I'm not good at this. Um, but texting throughout the day, I think is helpful. Um, I think one of, one of the things I'm more of an embodied person. <laughs> so out of sight, out of mind. Um, now, obviously I don't mean that to the extreme. Like I'm still thinking about my wife and all that, but it, it, it's good to prepare or set your wife up for success as you leave. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, if the house is, you know, less than clean, well, clean the house before you leave or, you know, fill up the gas tank or go to the groceries, just set her up for success um, just materially. And then set her up for success when it comes to dealing with the kids, like, you know, 
gentlemen, you will respect my wife while I'm away. You will respect your mother while I'm gone. Um, then following up on that, if they don't. So those are, I mean, I don't know if everybody does that. I don't know if, uh, if again, I, I would not say I'm a model on that, but those are the things that uh, I try to do when I leave. Well, you're not a perfect model. None of us are, but the very fact that it's something I've noticed and I'm asking you about, I think should be an encouragement that uh, the Lord um, has used you as a model in this. Yeah, I was, I was thankful you said something about setting her up for success. I think that's, and, and I'm not perfect about this either, but ever since I think I heard Ed Robeson say it, um, you know, it should be your goal as a man to not have your wife fill up her own gas tank. Mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not perfect about that, but when I'm in my right mind, I will go out of my way to try and make sure she doesn't have to do that. Like I said, it's, I'm far from perfect in that, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's good. What you said, you know, preparing the home for her, just uh, seeking to help her do those things that the Lord calls her to do. And um, yeah, that's, that's good. All right. So it's been said also that a pastor, uh, some some guys will say this at least, that a pastor should have some kind of hobby outside of his pastoral labors. And so I'm curious, what are Aaron Murray's thoughts on this? Uh, do you agree or disagree? And then why? And then if you agree, what what is a hobby or some hobbies of Aaron Murray? Yeah, well, the reason I'm not reading Manton like you is because I have so many hobbies, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think I think hobbies can be good. They can be, I don't know, if you look up like what hobby should I have, you'll find a lot of pretentious lists and stuff. Um, so I, I think anything that protects you from, you know, burning out. Um, one of the things that I find is the things that I, I enjoy doing, um, I do them to rejuvenate me to do what the Lord has called me to do. So a hobby should not be something that distracts you from the work that God has given you, but a hobby should be something that rather enhances your work uh, that the Lord has given you. Um, so when I think about, you know, my own hobbies and I, and I do have some, um, I want to make sure that my, my hobbies are, my goal is not escapism. Um, but, but my goal is to um, maintain what I am, what the Lord has called me to do. Um, so most of my hobbies, they're relational, um, or there's aspects of being relational uh, to them. So, and, and also I'll just say hobbies. Some people, when you use the term hobby, it's uh, like enthusiast or somebody who knows a bunch about that particular issue. And if that's how you're using the term hobby, then I would say no, but I have a bunch of interests. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll just start with this and I'll tee it up this way. When you uh, think about our Baptist brothers, uh, sometimes uh, the joke can be made that they try to hide uh, the fact that they drink alcohol from their congregation. When you think about those in uh, our circles, the joke can be made that uh, we hide that we play video games from our congregation. <laughs> and uh, I will say I do not hide it. So um, I do enjoy video games. I, in fact, I have a, a helmet of Master Chief here in my office. It's uh, one of the first things people notice when they come in, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Um, but I, but I do enjoy video games. And so let, let me, let me say this because I did say that it's uh, my hobbies are relational. So one, when it comes to hobbies and I'll use video games as an example, because it's the first one that I brought up, we ought not to be engaging in our hobbies or our interests. If we are not being faithful in the other responsibilities that the Lord has given us. So if, uh, you know, if I have not been faithful, uh, being around my wife and my kids, um, you know, why, why would you isolate yourself, um, with something like a hobby, whatever it is. Um, so hobbies are kind of, they're the margin. There's how, they're how I fill my time once everything else has been accomplished. Um, and even with that, like in video games in particular, I will not engage in them until, you know, uh, my kids are in bed until my wife and I have, you know, spent the time that we need to together and I won't play them by myself. Um, so it's very much a way to stay in touch in, in my particular case with uh, some of my siblings who live kind of all over the world. So it's a way that uh, we, we 
you know, talk and, 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 uh, stay in touch. And actually, you know, I've met people online, um, that I've never met before. And then, you know, they're in the area, you invite them to church and, you know, some of them have showed up before. Um, so that's, that's kind of neat. Um, I would say podcasting is also a hobby, uh, that we're doing. It's not necessarily something we're good at, but, but we do it. And again, there is a relational element to it. Like you and I get to talk every week. Uh, we're getting to, um, get to know our pastors, uh, much better, and hopefully it's uh, serving the denomination pretty well. So um, even with this as a hobby, it's still trying to bolster the call that the Lord has given uh, both of us um, as we try and pastor the particular congregations that we're in. Um, I do enjoy cooking, as I've said already. Um, and again, that's relational, like you're doing it for other people. Um, you're doing it with other people. You're having a conversation as you enjoy the fruits of your labors. Um, I, I have, uh, somewhat of a basic interest in firearms. I wouldn't say I know a lot about firearms, but, um, again, that is a relational thing. A lot of guys do, um, and it's a good way to bond with other people as you talk about them or, um, go shooting. In fact, we just went shooting the other day and I was shooting with one of my elders, um, this past weekend. So it's just a good way to, um, spend time with people. Uh, I recently picked up gardening. Have you ever tried gardening, Joseph? My wife is gardening right now oh well good for her it's not easy like i was in landscaping for 13 years and uh ornamental plants and you know fruits and veggies are totally different mm. so i i uh, recently took that up mainly because my wife wanted to do it she's been wanting to do it for a while but then also here uh, in the congregation that i'm in there's a number of people who um, garden as well so it's fun to kind of talk about you know how's your garden going you know what what challenges are you facing? So again, there's a relational element to it. Um, it's not to save money. Anybody who says gardening saves you money is lying through their teeth. Um, but in any case, um, I, uh, I also enjoy pickleball. Um, it's like tennis for lazy people, but again, a lot of people here play pickleball. Um, so we haven't started up this year, but last year, every Thursday night, we would all get together and play pickleball, um, at one of the parks here. So again, there's a relational element to it. I am a casual uh, weightlifter, I suppose. I don't lift a lot. Um, and I mean, I am casual. I haven't been to the gym this week because there's been other responsibilities that have uh, taken place of the, the gym time. That's something I do by myself, but there is a, a relational element to it in that, you know, we're called to be good stewards of our bodies. And so, um, you know, I, I'm trying to, to be that. One of my besetting sins is the sin of gluttony. And so kind of engaging in um, fitness helps offset that. Of course, it doesn't uh, answer the heart issue and that's something else you got to work on. But that's something that I enjoy doing. And I think Lord willing, um, by staying healthy, it will provide longevity for uh, the ministry. So again, there, there's a relational aspect to it. And then also reading, um, which is something that you kind of do by yourself, right? And, you know, unless you're reading with other people, but most of the time when we think about reading, we think of reading by ourselves. So that that's something that I enjoy, whether it's fiction or, um, reading more theology, but again, there, there's a relational element to it because if it's, if it's, if it's fiction, you know, you can recommend the book or, um, some of the books that I enjoy the most have been recommended to me by others. So I'll start reading them, um, to be able to have, talk about them with, uh, people that I'm trying to get to know. And that's been really fun. And then with, uh, theology, at least outside of the normal things that you're reading week in and a week out, uh, for the ministry, it's to help you in the ministry. So again, there's that, that relational side of things. So, yeah, hobbies are important um, because it protects you from burnout, but they are to enhance the calling that you've given. They're not to be an escape from the calling that the Lord has given you. And, you know, my particular hobbies are all more relationally oriented. Fair enough. Good stuff. All right. Do you have hobbies? Um, I mean, you like guns. I know that. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I you talk about, talk about like how how broad or or what we mean by hobbies because yeah i mean as far as interests go i definitely have interests like you said um there are you know i like to exercise things like that um certainly like to read and it's funny you mentioned pickleball i just played pickleball for the first time with one of our members did you like it two or three weeks ago now i loved it actually dude it's so fun um, and usually like i tell people I am a decent athlete at sports where I can make direct contact with the ball. And I am not a good athlete, generally speaking, in sports 
where there is a stick or something in between my hand Mm -hmm. and the ball. There are exceptions. I'm horrible at bowling. Um, But like pickleball, I was not that bad for like it being my my first time out like yeah the learning good, curve but... is not hard like it's it, you know some people are insane at pickleball like I, i'm just in awe of their talent and skill but for the most part it's pretty basic yeah yeah and like like it is that perfect mixture between ping pong and tennis like it doesn't mm-hmm. have or or perhaps maybe the other sport i was decent at, i don't think it's too far off but badminton and I think it's because of it's similar like, concept, right? Yeah. Same with pickleball. There's a little bit of whiffle or wing mm-hmm. to the ball. And so you can definitely get speed, no doubt, but it is a little slower, uh, not like a ping pong, you know, or, or tennis. And yeah, I don't know. It was, it was fun. We were actually just joking about uh, with a group, maybe starting an, an inter congregation pickleball tournament mm-hmm. sometime this See, summer. We or should, but... we should totally do that. And, and we should set it up to where we have like a, a massive, um, like presbytery tournament at international. Well, I was going to say, like, we could have regional tournaments, you know, congregational, just like mm-hmm. spelling bees, right? Like mm-hmm. you win at your school and then you go right. to the, right. the district. And so then we have the presbytery and then every four years we have the, the pickleball olympics at international uh, that would be so much fun <laughs> all right unless we go too far off our, our goal for today all right last question theology question mm-hmm. i know this is mm-hmm. something you've wrestled back and forth with um so just curious of where aaron murray's thoughts are on this now was rahab's lie a sin mm-hmm. or was it was it somehow some sort of commendable, commendable, dutiful lie or whatever one may want to call it? Mm-hmm. Well, so as you've <clears throat> articulated, and we've actually had uh, a bit of a debate in uh, seminary before, so you know you're you're getting your jabs in here. Um, so I, I have found myself kind of oscillating like a fan, going back and forth on the morality of Rahab's lie. I would not say that. It's like it's a commendable thing. Um, but, you know, a year and a half ago or so, I would say, yeah, I don't think there was immorality in Rahab's lie. Um, now, part of the reason for me thinking that at the time, I've changed my position, but thinking that at the time was just the the concept of um, ethical deception and whether there's a, ever a time where deception may be ethical. And that that I think that's actually a separate um, issue. But when it comes to to Rahab, one of the things you know you've got to recognize about her, you know, we we, we focus on her lie, um, and we kind of miss who she actually is, right? She's Rahab the prostitute. So uh, we could easily say that you know she is a lying serial fornicator about who she is, and that's not who she stays though. So um, I'll just answer: No, her her lie was not. Uh, celebrated by God. Um, the, the passages that mention her, you know, James 2 and Hebrews 11, I believe, um, are not commending her for her lie, but rather for her faith. And that's what we kind of miss um, when we think about Rahab. Yes, okay, she she hid the spies. Yes, she allowed them to get out. But when she's talking to them after she does lie to, to the king and um, sends the army out the gate to try and find them, she goes up and she talks to them. And she's like, you know, we've heard about all the things that your God has done. We've heard about the plagues in Egypt. We've heard about how he allowed you to cross the Red Sea. We heard about how uh, he used you to conquer Og and Sion. Like there's great fear over the people of Jericho. And then, you know, she says um, in Joshua 2, 11, that, you know, your God is the God of heaven above and earth beneath. And what she's doing, whether, you know, she's heard this um, before or not, whether this is just the spirit revealing this to her is she's it's a, basically a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 4:39 which talks about you know Yahweh being the only god um being the all-powerful sovereign supreme uh being and there are no other gods but him and so what she's doing is she's making a declaration of faith um a profession of faith so you know I would include myself in this but it's unfortunate that most of the time the focus on Rahab is on her lie and not on her profession of faith. So that that may not be exactly where you were thinking I was going to go with it, but no, uh, her lie was not 
commended and celebrated in scripture. It was her faith um, that came after. I'm just glad to know you're orthodox in your view of Rahab's lie being oh, sinned. Well, I, I appreciate, you know, um, the fact that you are not <laughs> condescending at all with that. Not at all. I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. No, that was good. That was good. No, you're right. You're right. Um, so actually, we can lose. Yeah, you go on. You and I were talking about this earlier, um, and I think you'd, you'd preached on this about the idea of what is a lie and what isn't a lie. Do you, do you remember kind of the categories off the top of your head from that discussion? Yeah, some of them. Um, so, ah, so one of them for sure is that to only reveal part of the truth is not a lie. Um, because we see God commanding Samuel to only reveal part of the truth. So, so what I mean by part of the truth is not partial truth in the sense that it's mixed with error, mm-hmm. but part as in part of a pie. So if we have a truth pie to only reveal part of that truth, like I'm coming to sacrifice versus telling you that I'm actually coming to anoint David, uh, both were true and he only revealed part. And so that's not a lie. Also, ethical deception. As you noted, I'm, I'm going to try and find my, my sermon real quick as we're going over this because I'll have it right here. Um, ethical deception is also not a lie in, in the sense that, you know, we see God in Joshua uh, command the ambush, right? And so there's mm-hmm. there's, in that sense, there is deception commanded on God's part. But the difference is with acts of deception, there's no, there's no contradiction on the part of the actor. So the actor is doing exactly what he intended to do. And so like the illustration I used in my sermon is if you do a pump fake in basketball or you leave your lights on in your house when you're going away, uh, this is not a lie because there's no contradiction on your part. You're doing exactly what you wanted to do. You're making someone else think that you are shooting that shot or you're making someone else think that, that you're home. And so any deception that is, is had is on the part of the one being deceived, not on the part of of the actor. And so as we see with lying, the main issue, what, what, what constitutes a lie is contradictory speech. And so it's, it's speech as to where someone speaks, someone knowingly speaks something that is contrary to the truth. Okay, so I finally found my sermon. Sorry, I was kind of blabbing away as I was as I was looking for what I said. But yeah, I'm used so, to you blabbing. It's fine. I know, I know you are. <laughs> so, anyways, <laughs> silence is not a lie. Mm-hmm. So, to merely refrain from speaking the truth is not the same thing as a lie. We see Jesus when he was um, being interrogated by Pilate and, and that whole crew there all around that. He he stayed silent when he was asked a question. Uh, also, like I just said, part of the truth to only reveal part of the truth is not a lie. God commanded it. God cannot lie. Therefore, that can be considered a lie nor a sin. Deceptive actions uh, cannot be said to be a lie because, again, God commands them. Um, and and also, they just do not meet the criteria of a lie, which is um, speak knowingly speaking contrary to the truth. And I'm not going to preach the whole sermon again, but, but that, that definition is, is warranted biblically. Figures of speech are not lies. And so when someone's using hyperbole or something like that, the scriptures often speak, though I think there could be some symbolism in this as well, but may speak of walls reaching up to the heavens or, or things like this. Like it's understood that the walls around this city did not literally reach up to the sky. It's hyperbolic language that's being used, even if it does have some symbolism in it as well. Um, And then also unintentional errors of ignorance are not lies. So someone can speak contrary to the truth, but so long as they're not knowingly doing so. So I could tell you it is 1,000 miles from Marion to 
Dallas, Texas. And I may think that that's true, but let's just say it's not 1,000 miles. Well, I'm not, no one would charge me of lying. They would charge me of simply being an error. So those are the five things that are not, not a lie. And, and I think that is critical to understanding that Rahab did lie and that, that deceptive actions are, are a distinct category of thing that she did knowingly speak contrary to the mm-hmm. truth and mm-hmm. that the Bible nowhere commends her lie and, and nowhere commends lying. It's always everywhere condemned. And so as Calvin put it, we have to detach the virtue from the sin, which clung to it. Certainly she was a woman of faith, great faith in the hall of faith, but that we, we, we have no problem affirming that much sin attached to David and to Moses and to Abraham and all these other people. And so it just shouldn't bother us to say, yeah, Rahab flat out lied. That was a sin. And yet she was a woman of great faith. Yeah. And, um, and all those categories that you gave, would you put the Hebrew midwives in any of those? Or do you think that they were similar to Rahab and saying the opposite of the truth? Yeah. So I, I just put there, my sermon up. There, so it, it seems a little bit different to me. No, it um, certainly is. You know. So I address them in the sermon. And I think it's just as possible that they only revealed part of the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, because there's nothing in their statement that the Hebrew women give birth rapidly, you know, before we get right. there like that. There's nothing that makes one necessarily believe as there is with Rahab. There's no getting around. Rahab lied. She knew they were under her under the brush in her house or on top of it. And, and she told them that she didn't know where they were. They went somewhere else. Would you say it's fair to say that the spies were in with under or above the house? Come on. That was funny, Joseph. (laughs) So funny. I didn't know what to say. (laughs) So anyway, go on. You were on a roll. I cut you off. I was, you're like, you're good at doing that. Um, So yeah, the Hebrew could, could easily be seen. This could be seen as an example of revealing part of the truth. That, that was a factual statement that they made. They just did not reveal all of the truth. Um, so they could have they could have been lollygagging, uh, intentionally lollygagging on their way to the calls of the Hebrew midwives. It could have been a fact that that did happen. That was something that often happened. And they just gave a fact that was often the case, even if not always the case. So just as possible that that is the case. But then even if even if would one would want to affirm that they lied, it's same it's the same thing with Rahab in the Exodus account. What is commended of the Hebrew wives is their fear of God, not their lie. Fear of God could be distinguished, but is, is, is of one in essence with saving faith uh, in, in the sense that faith involves this element of true and reverential fear. And so it's like with Rahab, it's the faith and the fear of the Lord that is commended never the lie, even if one would want to say that the, the midwives did lie, and I'm not convinced that they did. All right, let me give you one more question, and then I'll, uh, I'll close this out. So my son absolutely loathes onions. He hates them. And so whenever onions are put in his meal, he'll look at me and he'll say, Dad, are there onions in this? And I will look at him and I will say, Son, I didn't put any onions in your food. You can eat it. Is that a lie? Did you put onions in his food? No. If I put onions in the food, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't say that. But there are onions in the food. All I'm saying is I didn't do it. I would categorize that as deceptive action. Is that so I don't think, I mean, I don't know because, because I'd have to think about it because as, as, as is the case, some deceptive actions can be sinful, mm-hmm. even if they are not necessarily lies. We mm-hmm. just know that all deceptive actions cannot be sinful because God commands some deceptive actions. So some deceptive actions can be lot can be sin. And so I guess we would have to wrestle with that, but I don't think it's a lie because your formal statement is not formally speaking, you knowingly speaking contrary to the truth, because it's the truth that you did not in matter of fact, put onions in his food. So, so that's a true statement. Now, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to think about it off top. I wouldn't say you're sitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that All would right. be my, my natural go-to there, but 
Yeah, well, this has been another episode of Blue Banter where we talk about parental ethics and how to get our kids to eat their food without provoking them to wrath. Um, your guest today, I guess, has been uh, myself. We thank you for listening. If uh, you wouldn't mind liking and uh, reviewing our podcast on um, iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing this podcast on your social media, that would be a uh, real help in getting the word out uh, about this podcast. Uh, if you have a question that uh, you would like us to ask the pastors that we interview, or you would like us to interview your own pastor, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.